Welcome to Inside Medical Malpractice. This subject fascinates everyone everywhere because it affects everyone everywhere. My name is Chris Rokosh. I'm a registered nurse, legal consultant and educator, and the president of Connect Medical Legal Experts. Medical malpractice affects patients, families, nurses, doctors, midwives, healthcare institutions, the associations that define medical standards, lawyers, and the general public. Each month, we'll be looking at the malpractice issues from different perspectives, featuring honest, candid, insightful interviews by people and professionals with a wealth of information to share. Thanks for spending time with me today. Now let's dive into this fascinating subject. Today, I've been talking to Paul K. Hill, a plaintiff's lawyer from Will Davidson in Toronto, and we've just recorded three separate podcasts on three separate medical malpractice trials that Paul ran in the last 12 months, which is a feat in itself. Um, and at the time of this recording, he's had, or he knows that he's got a successful outcome on two of the three that have been waiting for the final judgment on the third one. And if you haven't listen to those, please do. I mean, Paul's discussion is very insightful and candid from the plaintiff lawyer's perspective, um, but with lots of um, advice for all of us, um, for doctors, nurses, for patients, and good lessons on the roles of advocacy and hard work and preparation. But now that we've talked to Paul about you know, the facts of the cases and the outcomes and the highs and the lows, I want to just learn a little bit more about Paul with some more personal questions. Um, I do know him professionally. He's a plaintiff's medical malpractice lawyer in Toronto. We've worked together, uh, me as a nursing expert, him as a plaintiff's lawyer. Uh, We've spoken together at different conferences and different panels, and that's always been a pleasure. But Tell me a little bit more, Paul, just about you. First of all, I think medical malpractice law, I think law probably has to be a tough profession, and medical malpractice law is tough, tough within the tough. Why did you choose this? So I would say that it it chose me. Mm-hmm. I didn't um, come out of law school having any ambitions, ambitions of doing medical malpractice. I, I knew very little about what medical malpractice law was. Uh, in fact, when I finished law school, I was probably more interested in doing criminal law. Mm. Um, I, I'd done a little bit of um, legal aid work as a student doing criminal criminal law, and I, I liked the idea of being in a courtroom. And um, and I kind of thought that you know criminal law was, was what I wanted to do. I ended up, however, taking a job at uh, Will Davidson, where I'm now a partner. Uh, I took an articling job there, and Will Davidson at that time was and still mostly is about, you know, 50% insurance defense work and the other 50% is uh, plaintiff personal injury work with a heavy focus on motor vehicle uh, litigation and and other types of claims. The only lawyer that was really doing uh, medical malpractice was Gary Will, who's my partner and at the time my mentor when I was an articling student. And I say medical malpractice chose me because I ended up working very closely with Gary in my articling year on a fairly large medical malpractice case that went to trial in Kingston. The name of the case was Williams and Bowler. And it's a case that's actually quoted a fair bit in the legal jurisprudence uh, because it 
it, it had a lot of really good uh, outlines in terms of what the law is and the standard of care. It was also a very interesting case. And it was a long trial. It was about six weeks long uh, out of town. And the preparation that we put into it was significant. I would say probably about half of my articling time was spent working on this specific case. And it was through that um, being dropped into a very specific practice area of law that it was like a crash course for me. And it was almost an awakening in terms of really, really enjoying the subject matter. And I. I'd never, like I said, I'd never thought about doing it before, but just being in trial, learning the medicine, talking with the doctors, I was basically at Gary's hip the whole time. Uh, we would drive throughout Ontario uh, in the week leading up to the trial, meeting with the experts in person. Um, it was a case involving a, a misdiagnosis of a subarachnoid hemorrhage uh, mm. that was caused by a ruptured cerebral aneurysm. And so we were consulting with neurosurgeons, neurologists, um, emergency room physicians, family doctors. And by the end of the trial, I was pretty convinced this is what I wanted to do with my career. Hmm. Um, and so from that point on, when I started practicing and got called to the bar, I really... Um, focused on developing my own cases and, and continued to work with Gary on some of his other medical malpractice cases. But at that time, and, and still now to some degree, there, there wasn't a lot of competition for medical malpractice cases. In fact, a lot of plaintiff personal injury lawyers couldn't get rid of them fast enough. Mm -hmm. So it was an area that allowed me to find um, a niche without having to um, fight with a lot of other lawyers for those files. Right. Um, so I, I kind of had this sort of perfect storm of being introduced to a, a very specialized area of law that I really enjoyed and was interested in, and then coming out as a very junior lawyer, having the ability to actually attract new clients on my own, uh, mm -hmm. because most people didn't want to even look at these cases. Hmm. Has that changed now in your perspective? Uh, I mean, I think um, I think it's a little bit more competitive in terms of uh, medical malpractice. I know for sure uh, there's a lot of uh, plaintiff personal injury lawyers that uh, would like to do uh, these cases on their own. Uh, there's a lot of opportunities for lawyers who are experienced in medical malpractice to co-counsel with um, plaintiff lawyers who may have the files but maybe um, don't have the uh, the level of experience to feel comfortable running these cases. Yeah. Um, so there's, I do, you know, like a lot of lawyers uh, in this area, I do enter into co-counsel agreements with a lot of lawyers who may have less experience uh, and then benefit from collaborating on a, on a larger file together. Um, but yeah, I think with the changes to the uh, motor vehicle accident compensation scheme, as, as many people may know who are, yes. who are lawyers in this area, uh, there's a lot of restrictions and uh, threshold and, and those cases in general are, are a little bit there, there isn't as much revenue out there. So people are trying to broaden um, sure. their practice areas into different areas. Sure, that could certainly, I'm sure from your legal perspective, that's a hot topic all in itself. <laughs> you could talk oh, about yeah, for, sure. for yeah. a day and a night. Absolutely. So, um, you know, I, I know this is tough work and the stories are sad and none of these outcomes are good. Um, as we've discussed already in the cases that we, that your three trials last in the last year, what keeps you going and gets you up every morning? 
know, I, I um, I'm very grateful for everything that I have in my life, my friends, my family, um, my uh, partners, my, my legal partners, uh, and my law firm, my clients, and my staff. You know, I, I re- I'm you know one of those people that you know I get up in the morning and I look forward to to going to work. Mm, that's um, and, great. You know, I try to bike into work as much as I can. It's about a ten kilometer bike ride, so I, you know I look forward to that to get the fresh air and the exercise. Um, and then get into the office and and just try to feel like I'm making a difference in some people's lives. Mm. Uh, and, and you know, for the most part, um, the clients that I have in my practice are they're great people. They're nice people. They're grateful. They're happy with um, with the services that they're getting. You know, that kind of you know works its way back to me in terms of reinvigorating myself. Right, right. when you get that positive feedback, uh, when you get that win, when you get that client hugging you. You know, mm. uh, at the end of a case, because they're so happy that uh, you, you know, were able to achieve this resolution for them. Right. So I, I definitely get a lot of joy in in terms of what I do, and uh, that gets me up in the morning. Mm. That is so great to hear. And what are the kind of things that keep you up at night? Finding good experts. Mm. Mm. <laughs> I um, I honestly. You know, when 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 you have a case and, and the facts seem pretty good, you you know that the problem is always going to be finding the right expert to say the right thing. Right. And you know that the difference between having that and not having that is the difference between a case settling uh, or going to trial and being successful or, or having to abandon the case or losing a trial if you don't have the right expert saying the right thing. And... You know, over time, as you develop experience in this area, you, you get a better sense of who the right expert is in terms of the specialty area. Right. And you, you start to learn that, you know, just because you happen to need a neurologist in a particular case, you start learning how even neurologists or, you know, these subspecialists have further subspecialties of and course. interests that isn't quite necessarily obvious based on their on their designation. So you realize that, no, I need a neurologist who practices in the community, who you know, focuses on stroke right, or something like that. Got it. So you, you learn that. But what, what, what always kind of, you know, assuming you can find that person, then it's about getting them to say the right thing. And I would say receiving draft expert reports for the first time causes me the most amount of stress. Um, Why is that? In, in, in my life. Well, because, you know, doctors are not lawyers and they don't understand the law. And as much as you may explain it to them, they, they, I think they all grapple with the concept of the balance of probabilities, which is a fairly low standard, you know, and certainly not anywhere close to the scientific standards that doctors are accustomed to. Right. So I find that they can sometimes in their reports be a little bit ambivalent or um, equivocal in their opinion uh, because they're cautious of the fact that, you know, it's hard to know what would have happened from a scientific perspective because we didn't do the you know, the testing and there's no studies on it. So I find, um, I guess the best way to put it is sometimes I find uh, experts pull their punches a little bit in terms of how they write the reports. Um, Trying to be fair, I guess, but also maybe um, not realizing that the civil standard is much lower and they can, um, you know, arrive at certain opinions that, you know, it's more likely than not that something would have happened. So when, when we get the draft reports and they seem a little lukewarm, it becomes, you know, an issue of well, having to speak with the expert and understand why they wrote things 
that way and ultimately you know helping them to formulate an opinion that uh, as written will give you the opportunity to either settle the case or be successful at trial right. and sometimes it's difficult conversations to have with these doctors I don't particularly like calling up a doctor um, who's you know 20 years older than me been practicing in a very specialized area of medicine for 40 years and telling him how to how his report you know the way he wrote it is not really helpful and, and trying to you know get him to change it um, you know for the most part they're they're great to talk to and it's not a problem but sometimes it can be an awkward conversation um, and um, you know I don't really look forward to that sometimes yeah no I hear you well working with a lot of medical experts that's not an uncommon um, discussion that we have between the lawyers sort of you know quarterbacking that between the two is mm-hmm. is just finding that fine line of what you can say you know, say and defend um, and not overstep but be helpful to the case whichever side you're working on um, so that that's a it's it's a tough spot all the way around you're not alone in that I guess is what I'm trying to say how do you hope mm-hmm. that your work in malpractice might influence healthcare outcomes because I'm assuming that that's one of your goals well absolutely and and you know you know I don't I don't know how much you know I'm not involved in any way whatsoever in terms of the administration of healthcare and in, in, in the province I'm, I'm I'm just a lawyer that tries to get you know people money for when things go wrong it really is what my role is um, does it could it have the potential benefit of increasing patient safety I think so I think certainly uh, hospitals are in my experience anyways seem to take a more um, uh, formal approach to uh, being faced with a lawsuit and having an internal review of systems and protocols and staff to see you know where things may have gone wrong and, and how that can be improved the way it works in Ontario is we, we we're not privy to any of that it's protected by legislation it's it's uh, confidential so I, I don't know how much that happens but I, I have a sense that you know when there's sort of an obvious error in the hospital for instance I had a case where a man had an orthopedic injury and he was admitted because he needed uh, dialysis um, uh, but he also needed to go to the fracture clinic and when he was taken to the fracture clinic they refused to see him because it was only for outpatient he was an inpatient. And so this, this gentleman ended up not getting orthopedic follow-up because of that reason. Uh, and, and so, you know, something like that, you could see how a hospital is like, well, that doesn't make any sense. we got to make sure that people who are inpatients also get access to the fracture clinic. Right. Um, so, so I think lawsuits like, like this would do that. I think the other thing that, that lawsuits do is I think, they, I think that they increase accountability uh, on the part of physicians and healthcare providers for medical errors. And there is, I think, a perception amongst the public that, you know, doctors are untouchable and that they can get away with, you know, being negligent and will not be held accountable for it because, uh, because of their position. They, they hold a very high and prestigious position in society. And there's a sense that, you know, doctors won't say, you know, testify against other doctors and it's all but impossible to successfully litigate a case against the doctor so why even bother trying and I think um, you know litigating these cases successfully uh, shows that they aren't untouchable and that they, they are human and they do make mistakes and sadly sometimes those mistakes cause harm right and in our society we believe that we're 
people cause harm because of negligence, that they're responsible to pay for those damages. Right. And, um, you know, I think having that mentality that it's really about compensation and accountability and taking responsibility for, um, you know, where, where someone's made a mistake in good faith. It doesn't, you know, I don't think any doctor wants to harm patients. I think they all come to work every morning with the greatest of intentions to of do their course. best. And I think of that's course. amazing. But, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes people make mistakes and it's not, I'm going to say it, it's not a big deal. Like, I guess for lawyers it is, but I think uh, it, it isn't so much. But, you know, for, for, for people it does happen and they should, they should get that compensation. So I think, I think that, that, that helps as well. Sure. Well, I think you did a really good job there of sort of breaking it down into the blackest and whitest sense and just kind of factual. And that was a real mm-hmm. revelation for me to learn about medical malpractice, that the laws are there to uh, protect the well to protect the public or, or to compensate the public who've been injured at the hands of healthcare providers and mm-hmm. um, not to make, you know, health doctors and nurses lives miserable, you know, which is sort of a common perception within healthcare. Mm-hmm. But uh, so thank you for explaining it in that with that level of clarity. So you're raising three boys, as we've heard. Mm-hmm. Um, will you encourage them to go into law or medicine, or would you say stay away from that? It's tough. Uh, you know, honestly, I, I warn my my sons about law that it's it's a tough job. Mm-hmm. Um, you're fighting with people. Um, there's a lot of things that are outside of your control. Um, it's stressful uh and sometimes um you know it it doesn't it doesn't feel like you're really helping people like you are you're getting people money for for when they've been injured and so on and i think that's really important but you know you think about what would happen if the world ended and we had to restart society from scratch (laughs) probably wouldn't be an important position for lawyers (laughs) <laughs> at that initial stage, you know what I mean? We're, yeah, we're not the essential, um, you know, profession. Unlike medicine, right? right? You always need healers, you need, you know, doctors. And so, honestly, I, I tell my, my sons that if they're interested in a professional career, they should think about medicine because mm-hmm. I think medicine is an amazing um, profession where you are literally helping people every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's collaborative and it's, you know, it's not adversarial like my job is. Mm-hmm. Um, you're there to help people in a team environment. Um, and, uh, you know, so I encourage them to go into medicine, not mm-hmm. law. Interesting. And have you yourself ever had that thought that you should have been a doctor instead of a lawyer? You know, I um, I was focused on other things in high school. And uh, it kind of... <laughs> what? <laughs> I really wanted to you know, pursue music and I was interested in, you know, school wasn't a big part for me. So I was kind of, by the time I decided to get my act together, um, I didn't have the scientific and mathematical foundation to, to go into medicine. But, I, you know, I never had that ambition. Like I always did want to be a lawyer. So yeah. mm. you know, I think I ended up where I wanted to be. Well, and I forgot I knew that about you, that you have a musical background. What is your... We'll just talk for just a second about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, you know, in high school, got interested in playing uh, music and playing in some bands. And, you know, I, I, you know, maybe as I get older, I realize that I can be a little bit uh, all in or, or, or not at all. And I got all into music and, um, you know, dropped out of high school and, and 
played in some bands for uh, about a year and a half and uh, realized that uh, I was going to be completely impoverished for my whole life if I kept this up. <laughs> and it scared me straight back into school and, and got me straight to law school. Got it. Right. I was listening to um, <clears throat> some some quite famous musician talk a couple of days ago on a podcast that he was talking about his Freedom 95 plan, you know, because <laughs> like you're right. I mean, yeah. it's just, it's not always or often a, f- a financial success. Um, no. But, you know, it's it's a love and it's a lifestyle for some people. So, so Absolutely. yeah. So um, I just want to say, I want to ask you one more question, Paul, but before I do, I just want to say thank you so much. I really have appreciated your sharing of your knowledge your candid openness about yourself and your love for your work and your advocacy and your, you know, band. And, but if you could go back now and give yourself a little bit of advice as your younger self, what would it be? I would, I would tell myself to, you know, stay the course and and keep working hard. I know when, I, I I think I, I mentioned in, in another uh, section of our interview that you know I, I didn't have a lot of good successes as a trial lawyer in my first five to seven years of practice, and um, I tried I tried a bunch of cases uh, and I lost a lot of them. They weren't medical malpractice cases, but I did I did lose them. And I you know to be fair, they were tough cases, but it, it was discouraging. You know, it's very discouraging to particularly jury trials, right, where they they tell you to your face that they didn't like your case. Um, and, you know, having had those experiences, there were times when I wondered whether, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm on the right path. And I think I, I persevered and I continued on. And I almost feel like, you know, those, those experiences that I had that weren't, necessarily positive outcomes but i went through the motions of working hard and preparing the case and doing my best that as i became more experienced and in, in this area particularly medical practice it served me really well mm-hmm. to go into these cases with having had the experience of not being successful um, right. on, on a number of cases um, because it, it taught me that you know the worst thing that can happen is you lose yeah. but i always took from that that I'd rather lose than not try. Right. So stay the course. That's the advice. Stay the course. Stay the course. That's great advice. Thank you. So we'll um, wrap that up there. And just quick recap. This is Paul Cahill from Will Davidson in Toronto. If you're a lawyer looking for co-counsel in a medical malpractice case or a, a member of the public out there that would like to talk to someone about a potential malpractice case, you can find him. It's Paul Cahill, C-A-H-I-L-L, at Will Davidson in Toronto. Thank you once again, Paul. It's been an absolute pleasure. 